Brandon's defense, you know, they are targeting Texas and they're trying to make a strong push there. As a Republican, I want nothing more. I want them to sink all their time and all their money into Texas because they will absolutely never win it. And that leaves all the blue states that we picked up, you know, in our camp for the long term. Okay, we're out of time. My blood is boiling, so this dinner just got more expensive (laughs) when I win it. Pro-climate Republicans face an uphill election battle. Democrats seek to turn Texas blue. And a jungle race in California could determine control of the House. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environment politics in America. And this week, we are going all in on elections. This is our election preview show, and we're going to run you through some exciting races to watch come November. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media and your host of the Political Climate Pod. And I'm joined, as usual, by Shane Skelton, our resident Republican partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former congressional candidate and staffer to Paul Ryan. Then we have Brandon Hurlbut, our resident Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and a former chief of staff to Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. And I understand Stephen Chu just had his 70th birthday party. He did. I was there. It was only Steve Chu would celebrate his like 70th birthday bash by having a day and a half of physics lectures uh, oh as the gosh. party. So at night, though, um, I was uh, the entertainment along with... You were the entertainment? Yes, at the dinner. (laughs) uh, Flamethrowing. What'd you do? It was with um, our former communications director, Dan Lysico. And what we did was a roast of Steve Chu. We did an hour long PowerPoint presentation that announced the Chu for President 2020 campaign. So we had a lot of jokes in there comparing uh, Steve Chu to Donald Trump. Uh, For instance, one of them (laughs) was. To be clear, this was all a joke. Like, he's not running. (laughs) No, he's not running. But we did have mock campaign ads that we can show you. It's super funny. Um, we did a compare and contrast. You know, Chu was really, he told everybody they had to have white roofs because they're more energy efficient. So we had, you know, Trump praises white supremacists. Chu is a white roof supremacist. Uh, or Trump gave tax cuts to millionaires. Chu gave tax cuts to millionaires who buy solar panels. I should say that the uh, the faux campaign that you built is probably more effective than Hillary's campaign in 2016. <laughs> so you might be onto something. You might have an opportunity to make a difference in 2020. <laughs> But it was a good, you know, DOE reunion to see all of my old homies from the DOE. Richard Kaufman was there. You know, he's the chairman of NYSERDA uh, in New York, uh, which is uh, he's basically the energy czar for the state of New York, um, plays a meaningful role in this industry. So good to catch up with all of those guys and tell some old stories. And they all listen to the podcast. Love it. Made them all download. They're yes. all downloaded. Great. You mean you, mean you saw on their phones that they had already downloaded because they were such big fans for so long. <laughs> That's right. I think is yeah. what you meant to Lots say. Lots of five-star yeah. reviews already. Exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, if you like this, uh, give us a five-star review. <laughs> Shane, how are you doing? Good. Doing really well. Um, not as well as Brandon. I didn't get to hang out with a bunch of physicists all weekend. So, I mean, in that regard, I guess my life's boring. I did stupid stuff like hang out at the beach, play with my kids. But, you know. Pretty good. Snoozer. Doing pretty well. Yeah, a reminder exactly. of a day yeah. when we had science driving our uh, energy and climate policy. And big change to today. <laughs> oh. Nice. Well, uh, science <laughs> came up recently for the NASA administrator. Shane, you were talking about this earlier. Yeah. So this caught my eye as something that, that was really strange because politically it's the opposite of what you normally see. So he had to go through confirmation, Senate confirmation, 
He being? He being, I'm sorry, uh, Jim Bridenstine, who was a congressman from Oklahoma until he was nominated to lead NASA and then was ultimately confirmed by the Senate after about a year of fits and starts. And the reason I found it interesting was that typically what a lot of Trump nominees have done and Republicans in general is when they face a Senate with, you know, Republicans and Democrats relatively evenly split, they talk about how climate change is important and they're going to use their new role to find common ground and, you know, make a difference and all these sorts of things. Uh, Jim Bridenstine, as a member of Congress, was was very much not in favor of climate action, probably because he represented an oil and gas state. But I always assumed also that he just wasn't, just didn't believe in it. His statements were very clear that he didn't think the climate change was a real issue, anything we needed to address. So when he got, had to face the Senate, presumably he would, you know, sort of soften his position and say climate change is a really important issue. I understand NASA's role. I'm going to do something about it. But he didn't. He refused to give senators that satisfaction and, and held his previous position. Then after being confirmed, when he had no more political exposure, then he said, this is an important issue. It's critical that we address it. NASA has a key role to play. So just from a political perspective, I'm left wondering, um, has he truly changed his views? Was he always interested in climate science, but just couldn't do that politically as a representative from Oklahoma? I don't have the answer to any of these questions, but it, it was a trip to me because it was the opposite political formula that almost every Trump nominee has taken. I think we should get him on the show and ask him. I'm really curious about this because to your point, Shane, you know, Scott Pruitt said, you know, some friendly things about climate during his confirmation hearing and then went in and trashed the environment after he got appointed, you know, after he got confirmed. And so I'm happy that he made these comments. I wonder why. Yeah, those just came in the last week where he was addressing a bunch of NASA employees where he said that human beings are contributing to climate change in a major way. So I don't know, maybe he had a little more access to the research and you know, it was harder to make the opposite case. Yeah, that could very much be it. And if that's it, it begs the question, why don't people like him make whatever research he saw available to, to everyone else, right? Well, because I think there's a whole bunch of politics wrapped up in what information is available and how you can trust the sources to find the real facts, the true facts. Well, now let's go to elections where facts may or may not matter. Unclear. It's up to the voters anyway. So you just got to get them in the heart. Not the brain. Definitely <laughs> the heart. <laughs> Especially for the Republicans. Now that's just mean-spirited. I hope you give me a nice compliment at the end of our show today. I have two for you today. <laughs> oh. Uh, but, well, what I was really trying to say is that at the end of the day, you have to win over hearts and minds. Uh, clearly botched that one. But it doesn't really matter because this is all just a segue to our election preview. <laughs> For this portion of the show, we're going to run through some elections to watch for in 2018, where energy and climate issues are expected to play a role. I'm going to put two minutes up on the clock and have our co-hosts run through the significance of these races, who's running, what issues are at play, and why it's relevant to the broader political climate. Before we kick into our sort of blow by blow of some of the elections you should watch this year, I want to quickly touch on the fact that Don Blankenship, the coal baron who oversaw a fatal mining disaster that killed 29 people, did not get elected. So that was one of those races that people were really watching closely to see if his status as a coal guy in West Virginia could get him elected. And ultimately, the Republicans in the primary in that state for uh, the Senate gave him very few votes in the end of the day. He got crushed by the alternatives. 
So I thought that was an interesting to see what is resonating with voters so far this year. There's a broader debate going on about how extreme to be, I think, in both parties. Do the more extreme candidates advance or is it really coming to the center that's going to win at the end of the day? And as we said before, Congress is up for grabs. So this could really this this race of intensity is going to be so key. Do any of you guys have any thoughts on Blankenship before we dig in any further to other elections? I do, Julia, because we spoke right after uh, that primary and I told you guys, you know, disaster averted, Blankenship's out, Republicans have a shot at Mansion. I, I didn't you know, think it was a certainty. But Blankenship may still end up costing us the race because he won't go away. So now he's saying he's going to run as an independent. So Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, already has a pretty good standing in the state, though he's vulnerable. This is Democratic senator currently there. How long has he been in office for? Oh, boy. Was Manchin elected in 2012? This is the end of his first term. He was governor beforehand, though. He was governor beforehand. Uh, He's well-liked, and he's still beatable just because it's West Virginia and that's Trump country. But with Blankenship out of the way, we had a real good opportunity to pick up that seat. And now Blankenship, for whatever reason, is just going to kind of exist and probably siphon votes off the Republican candidate. So our nightmare is not over yet. I think that's so interesting. This just points to just how fractured, I guess, the populace is right now and what's resonating and where, because uh, he did not do well in the primary at all. Another primary race that happened recently was in Ohio, where the progressive candidate, Dennis Kucinich, uh, totally flopped. And he was he had come out on ending all oil and gas drilling in Ohio, um, which a lot of people thought was naive. You know, he called for a fracking ban. Um, Richard Cordroy, the former head of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, ended up gaining the Democratic um, nomination there. So that was another example where what is resonating with people? Clearly, the more extreme candidate did not. But then there's been races in Nebraska and elsewhere where more progressive people advanced. So that's a theme that I think we'll pick up on increasingly over the course of the next couple months. Um, and I think it will play into the races we're about to discuss now uh, in in two minute rounds, because we've got a few do we want to move through. So we're going to challenge our co-hosts to get to them quickly, tell you who's in the race, why this matters for energy and climate, and why it matters for the broader political moment uh, and taking over the Congress at the end of the day. So with that, I'm going to put two minutes up on the trusty old iPhone clock, and we're going to have one of our co-hosts kick off the conversation. The other one's welcome to jump in whenever. The first race we're going to look at is Indiana. It's a Senate race between Joe Donnelly, the Democrat, and Mike Braun, the Republican, who recently won the primary there, beating out two incumbent House Republicans, which is another theme we'll have to watch for. So we're going to kick it over to Shane first to tell us why this race matters. And three, two, one, go. Yeah, Julia. So as you know, I put this on the list, but I pretty much put it on the list to kick it over to Brandon because I don't see Mike Braun as having a huge impact on energy and climate policy. More interestingly, I see Joe Donnelly as another example of sort of a red state, purple state Democrat who's aligned with Republicans on energy policy for fear of losing his seat. So the question to me is twofold. One, if he actually holds those you know, more conservative energy policies, why is he a Democrat when he votes with Republicans on most important issues, including energy and climate? Or two, if he doesn't hold those views, but he pretends to hold them anyway for electoral prospects and he gets beat, what signal does that send to the Democratic Party about what kind of candidates he should be running in these uh, purple states? And, and that's really all I've got. But Brandon, I thought your insight would be really valuable there. I don't know if he truly holds those views. I mean, you know, Indiana is a tough state for us. Uh, it's pretty red, although Obama won it in 08, and that was one of the states in my portfolio. Uh, so felt well really good about that. But, um, 
you know, Donnelly is the best chance I think we have to win. And you don't get a lot of points from Republicans for being moderate. They will paint him as a cartoon, you know, liberal. Uh, that's what they do in campaigns. And so, um, you know, my advice is to be, you know, your authentic self and, and go fight for the views that you believe in, uh, whether he is moderate on this or, you know, would rather be uh, more progressive. Yeah. And I think that's the question, right? Is is there anything to be gained from being centrist on those issues? Or are you just basically making the point that the Republicans are making, which is we need someone more conservative? It could be Donnelly or it could be a Republican, but why not just pick up someone that'll vote with us on everything and help us caucus and, and, and keep the majority? That, I think, is the key thing for climate energy, especially climate, because some of the less progressive candidates won't do anything come the next you know, session to actually put a, t a price on carbon or any more ambitious climate policy. So if you try to take the political win for the more moderate candidate, you might lose out on actual policy action if that's what you actually care about. So do we get to pick a winner or are we out of time? Go for it. What do you what are you guys thinking? All right. Sorry, we ran the clock. I got Mike Braun winning that election. I really want Donnelly to win. It's going to be tough. All right. We'll leave it at there. Now moving on to Illinois. We're sort of working from the inside of the country out, Indiana, Illinois, and we'll get to the coasts later on here. So in Illinois' 6th Congressional District, we have uh, Peter James Roskam, the Republican, who was first elected to the House in 2006. Uh, he is facing off against Sean Kasten, the Democrat, as an energy executive who's seeking uh, elected office for the first time. So, Brandon, you're going to kick us off. You are from Illinois originally, right? Chicago. Go Bears. That's right. Bears. <laughs> I'm actually impressed I even knew that. I must have seen it on a sitcom. I, I am too. I, I just made that. I thought I made it up. Strangely offended by all of this. I'm a Wisconsinite. So. Oh, I don't even know who plays there. Oh, my gosh. Uh, moving on. So... We're going to give you two minutes on the clock. Tell us why Illinois matters for climate and energy issues and the broader political landscape. Go. This district is very key to the Democrats uh, taking control of the House of Representatives. It's a toss-up district. It's very suburban. When you think of like the quintessential soccer mom, uh, that soccer mom lives in the Illinois 6th District. I know that. I went to high school in this district. I ran a race close to it. But here you have, um, you know, Peter Roscombe just joined the Climate Caucus um, and, you know, uh, his opponent, uh, Sean Kasten, is from the clean energy industry. So he is making this a focus of his campaign ads. He's making this a top issue. Uh, if he wins, you know, it might be because uh, of his policy views on clean energy. Sean Kasten worked as president of Turbostein Corporation and Recycled Energy Development, for the record. Yeah, so th this race, in my opinion, is sort of the opposite of what we talked about with Indiana, which is you've got a Republican in a district that used to be, you know, the, the type of district that would vote Republican, you know, suburban soccer moms, as Brandon said, who, you know, were fiscally conservative and, and I'd say socially agnostic or socially left leaning. And so I don't, again, think that the winner of this race is going to determine, you know, whether or not there's a clean energy future. I think there's certainly a case to be made for someone like Sean Kasten, who could show some leadership on these issues from some practical sort of hands-on experience. But more importantly to me, these races are going to determine who controls the house. If, you know, suburban, upper class, middle class districts full of, you know, soccer moms and family men start turning blue, 
uh, Republicans have a much bigger problem on their hands, and they need to start rethinking how they how they approach these issues. That's right. Because that's what we saw in the special elections in 2017 was those suburban voters going Democrat. If they continue to do that in districts like this, big problem for Republicans. And we've got to ask ourselves why, right? So it, you know, there's a million reasons, and we're not going to get into all of them. But but from an energy and climate perspective, are those issues starting to resonate? Are moms starting to think about the future for their children? Um, you know, I'm sure there's social issues that we don't that we don't dive into on these shows. But I think we have to seriously consider those things. And if Roscom wins, will he feel more pressure to do stuff on climate within the Climate Caucus? That's right. So the Climate Caucus, now 78 members. There are new additions made in recent days. Uh, in addition to Peter Roscom of Illinois, there's Eric Paulson in Minnesota, Tom MacArthur in New Jersey, uh, and Ron Kind in Wisconsin, home of the... Um, the, the, uh, Packers, cheeseheads, badgers, oh, beer, God. fun, life, love, happiness. And yet you're living in L.A. Touche. We got to watch Bears-Packers first game of the season together. I don't want to do that to you, but I will. But I will because it'll be fun. <laughs> okay, guys, back to business. Moving on to our next race is Pennsylvania's first congressional district. This is one of those districts that was redrawn following the Supreme Court ruling. So here we have incumbent Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from the old 8th district, who is now running against Scott Wallace, the Democrat, a former attorney and nonprofit executive who is seeking election for the first time. Brandon, let's go to you first to hear why this is important. Let's put some time on the clock and go. I'm watching this race because it's Pennsylvania, which is going to be a huge state in 2020. It's the home of the Marcella Shale, so energy is an issue. Uh, Fitzpatrick is like a what I call a Shane Skelton Republican on energy. Uh, he's he's fairly uh, moderate, <laughs> fairly moderate, charming, um, even cute. Yeah. They just had yeah. an environmental Handsome. forum like two weeks ago where he um, he he had. Democratic candidates and his Republican opponent showed up. Fitzpatrick did not show up, but that did not hurt him in his primary. He still won. Uh, but but Scott Wallace is a climate philanthropist, and he will be running uh, on this issue. And so will energy and climate be a big issue in this race? And this is another district that will help determine who controls the House of Representatives. Yeah, so I agree with everything you said about me, especially the handsome part. But I, I but but on but on Brian, you, you have a face for podcast, Shane. <laughs> Touche. Well played. Um, I think you're right about Fitzpatrick. I think he, you know, if you're looking at a Republican that you'd want to work with on energy issues, uh, he's he's the right one. I think where you might really see climate play out in this race is that there are a lot of Republicans. I'm one of them. Uh, I think Fitzpatrick is another where you believe that natural gas is actually a really forward-looking climate solution. So you're reducing the carbon footprint of something like, say, coal. You have an abundant domestic resource, so there's an energy security aspect to it, um, a reliability aspect to it. And so, you know, if you're going to head off, you know, uh, we need zero carbon energy platform or climate is so important that even that even natural gas is a step too far, I think you're, you're not going to find a very warm audience in Pennsylvania. Having said that, I don't think that the map um, is necessarily going to give Brian Fitzpatrick an easy race. So I think this is one of those weird, do we think that progress on climate is good, especially if it props up the local economy, or do we have to focus on climate change in and of itself and sort of ignore um, access to valuable natural resources? Yeah, and before redistricting, this first congressional district went heavily for Hillary. But since the redistricting, um, you know, the people that are now in this area voted narrowly for Trump. So total toss up here. We'll have to see. And we are out of time for this race. So 
Next, we're going over to the coast, where we're going to look at North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. Here we have Mark Harris, the Republican, facing off against Dan McCready, the Democrat, who is a former captain in the Marine Corps, Harvard Business School graduate. He actually started a solar company in Charlotte and beat his challenger, Christian Cano, uh, with more than 82% of the vote, so highly favored on the Democrat side. Mark Harris came in to beat the uh, incumbent in that state, Robert Pittinger. So we got some fresh blood coming into this race. Let's go to Brandon again to talk about, you know, McCready versus Harris and why it's important. Three, two, one, go. So I chose this race because huge contrasts in the candidates. When Harris ran, he ran for the United States Senate in 2014 and was on the record as a climate denier in that race. And Dan McCready, you know, is a clean energy executive, has created a lot of solar jobs in North Carolina. North Carolina has a lot of solar. I think it's like, you know, one of the yeah. top states in the country. Duke just announced they upped their solar portfolio another 20%. Yeah. It's growing like crazy. So this is, but this is a tough district for Democrats. And so I'll be watching to see, can McCready make you know, clean energy, a real sticking point in this race and run on it and use that as an edge to beat this guy in a tough in a tough district. So as Brandon mentioned, North Carolina is sort of an unknown um, boon to clean energy in our country and, and has a good economy for it there. Uh, sometimes in life, I think you get dealt a bad hand. And on this particular uh, topic of debate, I got dealt a bad hand. I'm going to give a little inside baseball to our to our podcast listeners. I know nothing about Mark Harris. So I'm looking at production notes, and here what I here's what I now know about him. He was a founding member of Vote for Marriage North Carolina, which worked to support legislation to define marriage in the state as between one woman and one man. That's what I got for energy policy, so I concede this race. <laughs> the letter next to the name doesn't always indicate that, I, that I'm required to, to support the individual. So, so here's another one where the lunatic fringe idea. is hurting Republicans in the primary. Yeah, I mean, this is like I'm seeing this for the first time. I'm being honest. I'm not as prepared as I should have been on this race, and I'm sort of like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not defending this guy right now. <laughs> That's fair. I do take Brandon's point though. Dan McCready, like, this will be a major boon for solar industry folks if they feel like this is a platform that resonates with voters. We know it's popular in the general public. All the polling indicates that. All the surveys, rather, does it translate into political wins? I think this will be super interesting to Julie, watch. Julie, we need more people from the clean energy industry in Congress. The fossil fuel guys have their people. And in order for us to get effective policy passed, we need people from the industry to be members of Congress. It's just sort of an off-the-hand comment here about North Carolina is Jay Faison, who you know is the founder of ClearPath and funds clean energy Republicans, He's from North Carolina. He still lives in North Carolina. That's his home base. And I, and I guess I'm just a little surprised that he didn't look for an opportunity to support a candidate that could compete on those issues in that state. You ding, think ding, he'll ding. support a guy like Dan, Dan McCready in this race? No, no. He, he, I think it's clean energy Republicans, okay. not clean yeah. energy candidates. Oh, got it. Well, Steyer is uh, looking at this race and I think has talked about investing a million dollars into it. Tom Steyer, who leads Next Gen America, is really active on impeaching Trump. Uh, he's a billionaire active in this space. Uh, yeah, that's. I think North Carolina is one we'll definitely circle back on. And it's interesting to note, according to a new report by the National Association of State Energy Officials, they found that there are 3.1 million clean energy jobs in the U.S. and there are now more clean energy jobs in 43 states and D.C. Uh, than jobs in the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, it's something that really 
I would be surprised if it didn't translate into politics. Yeah, and Julia, let me just point out that you know I'm a big fan of clean energy jobs, so I don't mean to disparage in any way, shape, or form what you're saying, but fossil fuel jobs sort of are where they are. They're natural resources. So, you know, it's not like a solar company where you could start it in Florida or Texas or Alabama or Missouri. Um, you either have deposits underground or you don't. So there's going to be more geographic diversity with clean energy than there is for, you know, an under-the-ground resource. The more that we make this a jobs issue, the better chances that we have to win. So from North Carolina, we go down to Florida. Here we're looking at the 26th Congressional District. Uh, this is a House race where we have the one of the co-chairs of the Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, Representative Carlos Corbello, who is facing off against a Democrat who we don't quite know yet because they haven't had their primary. It's either going to be Demetrius Grimes or Debbie McCarcel Powell. Uh, that primary has yet to be had. So Corbello is an interesting figure because, again, he founded the Climate Solutions Caucus, which is a bipartisan group of lawmakers that seek to advance climate policy. But as we pointed out in previous episodes, uh, some of the members have mixed pasts on climate issues in terms of their voting records and maybe not being quite as environmentally friendly as you'd think. Uh, there are now 78 members, as we noted earlier. And so if the chair or one of the founders gets removed in the next election, that might remove some of the momentum in that climate caucus, whether or not you think they're super effective. Um, so Corbella will be an interesting um, race to watch. Of course, we don't know who the Democrat is, so unclear just how much of a challenge he'll face. But Shane, let's go to you for a little more insight on this race, putting time on the clock and go. Yeah. So I put this on the list, not necessarily because I think he's going to lose, but because I think two things. One, it fits exactly the theme of this show, which is if you're you know, pro-climate solution, do you care whether the person's a Republican or Democrat and how much do you respect leadership uh, across the aisle if you want to get something done? But then two, just numerically, he should lose this race. So in 2016, he won by 12 points. He was the incumbent. So he beat back a challenger by 12 points. That same year, Hillary Clinton won his district by 16 points. So that's a really interesting split ballot, whereby the people in that district clearly wanted to vote Democrat for president, but appreciate their representative on an individual level. So, you know, if you look at the numbers that way, he could be incredibly safe. But he is, you know, probably the most outspoken Republican in Congress on climate issues. As Julia mentioned, he co-founded the Climate Caucus. He actively works for solutions. It's not lip service. It's not greenwashing. So to the extent that you care about climate, whether you're a Democrat or whether you're agnostic, um, you should have no bigger champion. There's no one you should care about keeping their seat more than Carlos Cabello. And if Democrats punch a, pump a bunch of money into that race and try to remove him from office, then they might be serious about House majorities, but they're not serious about climate or clean energy. Well, I wouldn't say that. I, I do think that this race will be indicative of how much are these elections local anymore or have they all been nationalized? Uh, because he does have a great record. And uh, but but Democrats will be voting on who's the Speaker of the House. Uh, and so in that case, I think, it, you know, most Democrats will be voting you know for the Democratic nominee in this district. And, and the question then becomes, um, if the Democrats get the majority, uh, as you know, legislation is complicated, especially when you look to the Senate. You actually have to get it done. You have to have some compromise, especially on something as complicated as climate. You actually need Republican leaders. You don't need a ton of Republican votes, but you need Republican leaders who can get the bill into a, a position where you can get some Republican votes and carry at least a few in the Senate. 
Um, and, and so I just I think leaders like him are absolutely necessary on the Republican side, even in a Republican minority, uh, if we really want to have bipartisan legislation get through committees and, and get out. And we are out of time. It sounds like whoever ends up winning this district, they'll probably be active on climate and environmental issues. It looks like the Democrats are you know, pretty pro-action. It's hard not to be in Florida where they're really feeling some of the effects of sea level rise and changing climate already, which is why Curbelo and um, and Ted Deutsch, who's also a Floridian, uh, launched the Climate Solutions Caucus. So again, Florida, a race to watch. We'll see what happens there. Sticking in the Sunshine State, we're going to look at the race between current Governor Rick Scott up against Bill Nelson, the Democrat, who was elected to the Senate in 2000. He previously served six terms in Congress. Uh, Rick Scott obviously been in the news a lot lately over the response to the Parkland shooting. Um, High-profile race, and there's a lot of money being poured into this one. Shane, let's go to you on why this matters for climate and energy issues. Yeah, I think this race is really, really interesting because I can't honestly tell you that when you look at the two candidates records that Scott is more climate friendly or more environmentally friendly that's just not that's not a climate denier I I reject that uh, characterization of any human being I think Uh, but but I think but wait wait why I don't you know I don't know what it means to be a climate denier right does a climate denier mean that you believe that human beings have absolutely zero impact on the climate does it mean that you're uh, agnostic indifferent or unsure but that you're not going to you know uh, further policies that would that would make a difference so it could be the old camp of Maybe it's making a difference. Maybe it's not. But I'm not going to harm the economy to do it. I know that he has certainly said that um, that he is not uh, uh, that he is not uh, in agreement that human activities are a leading cause of climate change. I totally you, correct. And he had climate change like erased from like public records and such. So he is on the spectrum. He's yeah. pretty conservative. Skeptical, on if not a denier. Sure. I don't know. So yes, yeah, we'll skeptic. add, what, we'll add one for. more minute to the clock for this race. To, to circle back on, yeah, why is it important? So, yeah, I, I guess so. Look, you're not going to get any disagreement out of me. on Julie, that's like soccer. You're like adding extra time. <laughs> I, I know. We got stoppage time. Ultimate control. Wait, they do this in soccer? What is soccer? Canadians. Hockey. Oh, love that sport. But, yeah, I mean, look, we're in agreement on the principle. I have to quabble over the over the commentary just because... Uh, but uh, but we're in agreement. So the question is not, you know, who would be better for the climate, Scott or Nelson? What I think is interesting here is what has more of a practical impact, right? So Scott is allied with the president. And we saw when Zinke initially said that our new offshore plan is to drill everywhere all the time, every coast without dis- debate. Uh, Rick Scott stood up and said, nope, you're not going to drill off the coast of Florida. Zinke said, okay, get it. Like, that's not what you want. California so, was like, what the heck? Right, exactly. And, and that, that, so Julia, you're making my point, which is not that he's more climate friendly than Bill Nelson. He has more but, connections to the Trump administration? Well, does it matter why you do what you do if you have more of an impact on the environment? So if his opposition to this actually stops it from happening, does it matter how he feels in his heart of hearts? I don't know. I mean, that's what makes elections so interesting. I'm going to be watching the Puerto Rican vote in this election because Puerto Rico got wiped out by a hurricane and then Trump abandoned it. And so do the Puerto Ricans that came over to Florida and the ones who were already living there, do they feel, you know, like climate change is a bigger issue for them now because they felt it, you know, in their in in their life? And are they going to vote on it? And we, we saw that Cubans were a reliable conservative vote in in Florida for a long time that helped Republicans win that state. Are Puerto Ricans the new Cubans for Democrats? And we're out of time, even with that extra minute added on there. So that was a good one, Florida. If it doesn't sink before the election, we'll be a race to watch. Boo. (laughs) No. 
So here we're going to take a second to uh, discuss a little bet that came up when we were having dinner together the other day. Uh, Brandon, tell us what, how this came to be. So Shane and I have made a wager on the Texas Senate race. Uh, I am betting on Beto O'Rourke. Uh, Shane, of course, is betting on Ted Cruz. Um, but Shane spotted me seven points. So that's – and a poll just came out today that showed – uh, Beto O'Rourke down by seven points. So that's, uh, a, I think, a fair bet. And the the loser has to take uh, the winner to dinner anywhere in L.A. and buy, and buy dinner. So Ted Cruz could still win, but if he l- wins by any less than seven points, Shane buys Brandon dinner. Correct. Yeah. So and- I think what he basically said is that I'm going to eat real good on his dime. And I'm really excited about it. So do <laughs> really I get excited. to come? I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, if Brandon, if Brandon loses, sure. <laughs> Oh, thanks. Such a fiscally responsible Republican. We know Julia loves margaritas, so we'll definitely make margaritas a part of the dinner. We can't afford you, Julia. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Not the first person who said that. (laughs) I might cut that part out. Uh, so let's go. Let's delve into this race a little further. Uh, Brandon, go to you uh, for making your case for Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat challenger. Go. I think this is a super interesting race for several reasons. One, it's oil and gas country, but now a lot of wind. Ted Cruz is another climate denier. There's a huge contrast between Beto and uh, Cruz on this issue. Now, Beto right now is not running on clean energy and climate. He's really focused on gun control, public uh, education. Uh, so I'm wondering, after the hurricane that that Texas had, will this become a bigger issue as the race uh, plays out? And then, you know, sort of in a, on a larger point, Texas is like energy storage uh, for Democrats. It's the holy grail. If we can turn Texas blue, it's over for Republicans to win uh, the presidency because Texas has 38 electoral votes. If those flip into the Democratic column, become re- reliable, you know, Democratic state. And I don't know if it's going to happen in 2020, but the trend is in our favor. And Hillary lost Texas by less points than she lost Iowa. So we're trending in the right direction. Beto is a great candidate. Cruz is unpopular. This could be an indicator of when Texas is going to turn blue. So obviously, Texas is critically important for our our nation's energy mix, not only because it's the biggest oil and gas producer, but also, as Brandon mentioned, with wind. Texas produces so much wind that as as a clean energy generator as in total, it's actually bigger than California. It is the biggest generator of fossil fuel and the biggest generator of clean energy. So clearly, its representation matters. The point that Brandon made that I like the best is the one about Hillary. And what I always tell people is, uh, when I when I describe my bet with Brandon, if Brandon wins this bet, then Republicans easily keep the House and easily keep the Senate. And the reason for that is, you know, someone asked Hillary Clinton after the election, um, you know, did you lose because of Russian meddling? She pointed out that that was obviously James Comey and Russian meddling were the reason they lost. And this questioner, and I honest to God can't remember who it is, said, so what you're saying is if you could do it all over again, you'd change nothing. You'd spend more time and money in Texas and New Mexico than you did in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, and Michigan, because that's why you lost the election. And so in Brandon's, in, in, in Brandon's defense, you know they are targeting Texas and they're trying to make a strong push there. As a Republican, I want nothing more. I want them to sink all their time and all their money into Texas because they will absolutely never win it. And that leaves all the blue states that we picked up you know, in our camp for the long term. Okay, we're out of time. My on blood that is one. boiling, so this dinner just got more expensive when I win it. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to join you. <laughs> so the point there being that even if you said if Republicans win 
the House and Senate, and Brandon wins. So what's the scenario Well, there? so I'm saying if Brandon wins the bet, then that means that Texas was much closer than I anticipated, which meant that Democrats spent a lot of time, money, and resources in Texas, which is what they did in 2016, which is why we got to take Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Um, those states were just wholly undefended by Hillary Clinton. She was expanding the map and forgot about the states that were already in the map. And if they do that again, like, God bless them. I think Beto might win. I really do. I think it's a wise... But will it come at, at the sacrifice of other states? It's a good question. It's a good question. Great. We'll have to leave it at that one. Moving right along here. Let's head west over to Nevada. We have Dean Heller, the Republican, who uh, took office in the Senate in 2011. Um, he is facing off against Jackie Rosen, the Democrat, a congresswoman representing Nevada's 3rd District currently. So let's go first to Shane to hear about why this race is important. Three, two, one, go. So this is like a really, really fun race for me to talk about. And probably honestly with no one more than Brandon because of how I view the nuclear impacts of it. But obviously I want Heller to win. I think it's critical to keep in control of the Senate. I also just think he's a good representative. But putting that aside, from the clean energy perspective, I think we all agree that nuclear power is the most sort of reliable, robust source of carbon-free energy. And the biggest problem that we've had with nuclear power, other than the cost of it, is what to do with all the um, all the byproduct, all the waste. Yucca Mountain was designated, Yucca Mountain in Nevada, was designated in the 1980s as the nation's nuclear waste repository. And now we've got nuclear waste all over the country, creating all sorts of issues because Harry Reid has been so powerful for so long. So once Harry Reid left the Senate, it became pretty obvious that Yucca would be restarted and we'd start pumping nuclear waste in there and we'd have a robust nuclear industry. But then Senator Heller got into a rough sort of election cycle. And I think uh, Republicans and President Trump specifically have not wanted to throw him under the bus by putting Yucca back in place. So kind of oddly, in this weird way, House Republicans are already moving bills to get Yucca back up and running. Senate's doing the same thing. And if Heller loses... There is now no reason for Republicans not to reopen Yucca and store all our nuclear waste there. And once you solve that problem, nuclear power becomes much more viable. So in sort of a weird way, if Democrats completely take Nevada, then Republicans have no reason to protect it. And at that point, I think nuclear power is the benefactor. You mean the Republican minority in the House? Uh, well, hey, I don't even think it's a it's a it's a political issue. First of all, you know, I don't agree with that, but I don't even think it's a political issue. I think it was a Harry Reid personal yeah. issue. I think to add on that, Brandon. I think the Democrat is going to win uh, this race. Nevada is turning pretty blue. I mean, Hillary won it by five points. Um, and so I think this is going to be a, a race that we pick up and we'll, we need to in order to have control of the Senate. Yeah, there, there are, um, what, six seats total, four House seats and two Senate seats in Nevada, a state that would have been thought of as red not very long ago. If Heller loses this race, which he's predicted to do, I think, you'd have two Democrat senators, three Democrat House members and only one Republican. And we're out of time. And here's where we take a moment to hear from our audience. So this is our segment called Constituent Services, uh, where we tackle a question that someone mentioned to us on social media in the comments section. If you want to reach us, uh, tweet us at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate, and let us know what you'd like us to discuss. This week's topic comes from Tor Valenza, also known as Solar Fred on Twitter, who pointed out the Republicans have just sought to exempt large-scale solar projects from solar tariffs that President Trump put in place earlier this year that are really kind of curbing growth for the industry in 2018 and, and, the and will be over the next coming years. So these Republicans wrote a letter asking specifically for these 72-cell, 1,500-volt solar panels to be exempt, the uh, 
U.S. Trade Office is still considering what products to exempt or not from these solar tariffs. And so you're seeing real leadership from Republicans on behalf of the clean tech industry. So let's take a couple minutes to discuss this. Did this come at all as a surprise? You know, will they have any chance of getting this exemption? You got Republicans coming up against the president here who's made protectionist trade measures a really strong focus of his. Um, so it's not a surprise to me. Little inside baseball, we at S2C Pacific had a, a client looking at the, the tariffs during the formulation of this process, and this effort was underway then. There were both Republican lawmakers and utility-scale solar companies who were trying to get this specific carve-out. So I'm not surprised at all that they're trying to get it. Um, I highly doubt that they're ever going to get it. If you were going to exempt this type of product, you would have done it during the rulemaking process when all those voices were heard. But I think he raises a good point, which is Republicans are very active on this issue. So when we start to talk about climate, Republicans aren't as loud and aren't as active. But when you talk about the solar industry generally, the job creation that comes with it, and the clean energy opportunities, I think Republicans are every bit as loud, if not louder, than than our Democratic colleagues. So, so no, I'm not surprised at all that this is a bipartisan issue or a Republican issue. I'm just excited that people like Solar Fred are starting to notice it, because I think once the Republicans become more accepted as people who are fighting to grow these industries, um, they're going to have a lot more um, uh, open dialogue in the future. I think people often point out, though, that the support always kind of stops there. It, you know, they might prop up Uh, the solar industry in a specific state, Republicans will. But then when it comes to any more progressive action on climate, there's no hope in getting any backing. And so for a lot of people, that's just unsatisfying. Yeah, I I think they are two different things. So you talk about energy policy and you talk about environmental policy. And I think, you know, they can be considered together. But most Republicans, including me, view them as two very different discussions that can blend. Julia, you mentioned the jobs report earlier, you know, the tariffs, you know, Trump may have saved a couple hundred solar jobs, solar manufacturing jobs at those two companies. But, uh, you know, some of those studies have showed that the solar industry has lost like 24,000 jobs over this. So I'd love to see those tariffs removed. And with that, we'll turn back to California, our final races we're going to discuss on today's show. But let's take a second to quickly outline the jungle issue. I mentioned this at the top of the show. Brandon, can you describe what that is just so we have it on the record and and why this is an issue for California Democrats? Yes. And this is happening. The election is June 5th. So we are uh, it's coming up on us here. And so the jungle primary is that the top two go to the general election regardless of party. So if two Democrats come out of the pack of candidates, you know, they run against each other in the general, vice versa for Republicans. You could have two Republicans come out of the pack and then it's a guaranteed, you know, Republican seat. So the question in some of these races is do they do, you know, certain parties divide up the vote so much that, you know, two members of the opposite party make it out of the pack and then they're, you know, they can't win that seat. Yeah, as a Republican, you know, I think we have some great Republicans down there in Orange County, and I think a lot of them will hold their seats on their merits. But as Brandon said, there are races where I see multiple Democrats raising a lot of money. And in any normal state, I'd go, uh, this is not looking very good for my side. When I see three or four strong Democrats in one race, I'm going, this is fantastic. These guys are going to beat each other out of the race, and we're going to have a guaranteed Republican seat. So let's talk about California. There are several races there that uh that could be interesting for climate and energy. I'm going to throw out the clock for this one. Well, not entirely. I'll give you guys a few more minutes, though. Uh, Brandon, kick it off with you. 
So there's seven districts uh, that the Democrats are really focused on. I think California will play a large role in determining who controls the House of Representatives. Uh, a couple of the ones you know that I'm really focused on are down in Orange County, which has historically been a Republican bastion. But these are suburban voters that are now taking a hard look at the Democratic Party. Um, and in a couple of those districts, in the in the 39th congressional district, several Democrats are running. Uh, but there's a lot of millennials in that district. And if they activate millennials, that's going to be very good uh, for the general election. So 39th being Northeast Orange County, Eastern L.A., part of San Bernardino County. We're coming to you here from Los Angeles uh, proper. So, yeah, that's that's close to home for us. And the other um, uh, one that I'm watching very closely is the 49th uh, congressional district. Again, you know, several Democrats running there and. Uh, I was at a fundraiser last night for Mike Levin, who's a clean energy executive. Um, and what I learned last night is that in California, you, you have mail-in ballots. So many people have gotten their ballots already and they're voting. The voting is already happening. The election's less than two weeks away, but voting is happening right now. And the campaigns track when those ballots come in did they come in from a registered Democrat or a registered Republican? And what they're seeing in this race already is that the turnout is high amongst registered Democrats. Many of the ballots coming in, they're coming in in big numbers and they're coming in you know, for registered Democrats. So that's a very good sign for Democrats right now. And this is where um, incumbent Daryl Issa said he will not seek re-election. And by the way, I have an update on our Turn Shane Blue campaign. You know, Draco Malfoy over here from House Slytherin trying to get him over to the House <laughs> the Gryffindor good side. and the good, good guys. Now you know he's a Democrat, by the way, with the Harry Potter reference. So Hey, Slytherin also had very talented people. You know, it, it's not... It, it was necessary. Wait, I'm I trying to do get, something bipartisan Did I just here. get put in Slytherin? Did you guys just agree on that? I didn't really have like a... Absolutely. No, I, well, you did, but I was trying to say it's defensible. <laughs> so I was at a fundraiser, uh, again, in LA um, for the in the for the 49th District campaign, and Alyssa Milano was there, uh, you know, who I think every guy in you know, the age bracket for Shane and I had a crush on, you know, going back to who's the boss back in the day. And so when I told Shane about this, uh, you know, before we started recording, his eyes lit up. He was really excited. I think maybe one of the ways that we can we can get Alyssa Milano to convert Shane. I'd vote however she wanted me to vote. If she was sitting next to me while I filled out my ballot. But here's the thing that really, really stinks as a Republican. My ideas, I think, are the right ones, but everyone cool is Democrat. I go to fundraisers, wonderful people, right? Great, great people. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the with with the pick we get. But we never get, like, movie stars, musicians, girls I used to enjoy looking at posters of when I was a child. And, and I just feel like it's not fair. It isn't fair. I think you got Kid Rock. Um, yeah, well, I, I did not have Kid Rock posters on my wall, much as I... Uh, didn't listen to his music either, actually. So, <laughs> but, but thank you though for that, Julia. Thanks I'm trying the, to throw the... you a bone. By the way, I got to share this quick story about Alyssa. She's so sharp. She's a wonderful activist, and she was telling me about her six-year-old. And uh, Toys R Us is now, you know, out of business. And she asked her, you know, her six-year-old what what he wanted to do, and uh, he wanted to march. <laughs> so I thought that was a fun story. He wanted to march. Yeah. What is he going to march for? To reopen Toys R Us. Oh, I thought he would, like had a political issue. <laughs> he he no. does. He wants toys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Clearly, I don't have any children. Um, Shane, do you have anything else you want to add on on California? What are the races you're watching? Um, same ones, actually, as Brandon. This is interesting because of the jungle primary. We're all sort of watching the same races. Uh, Orange County is interesting because it is such a Republican stronghold. And not only that, 
it's sort of reflective of a lot of these districts that we've talked about, like the one we talked about, I think it was Illinois 6th District. Um, this is a district that is a very affluent, college-educated, upper middle class, you know, to upper class, uh, always vote Republican, not really socially conservative, but very fiscally conservative. You're, you're sort of country club Republicans. We need these areas to stay Republican. So, you know, you can call it chicken or the egg. Did, did, did the Republican Party leave these voters? Did the, are these voters starting to leave the Republican Party? But we've got to we've got to get these voters on board. We've got to get them excited. And if we get cleaned out in Orange County, which I don't think is going to happen, but if we do, um, I think it's time for, for both California Republicans and national Republicans to have a, a serious conversation about what issues these voters are focusing on and where it is that we lost them. What do you think about energy and climate playing into those those races and specifically from the Republican perspective, because it seems like the Republicans in California are mostly on board with clean energy agenda. They haven't gone out of their way. It's hard to in this state when they're back home. Obviously, they're going off going to go off to Washington. But what does it mean for getting any policy work done on climate and energy once they get to office in Washington if they do get elected? So I think, you know, on the Republican side, these guys are, are guys are, are women. Sorry, males or females. I, I never do the gender specific thing, but they're going to have um, the same views. So I don't think the issue is, you know, who do you send and are they anti-clean energy or, you know, anti-climate or pro-climate? I think what we you know talked about earlier is they're going to determine who runs the House floor. And that really is, I think, where some of this stuff's going to come in. There are certainly, you know, candidates in Orange County on the Democratic side that might be more climate friendly than the Republican side. But I think at the end of the day, it's really a wash as to how that individual member votes. The real question is, what are they going to have to vote on? And seven seats in, in California. I mean, think about it. That's like almost one third of the seats Democrats would need to win to take the House. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm paying attention to is, is it's one thing to be climate friendly and, you know, um, uh, have the right policy, but it's another thing to be a champion. Somebody's going to go to Congress and focus on this. And so, uh, some of these candidates that are running that are from the clean energy industry, the you know the Sean Caston in Illinois, uh, Dan McCready in North Carolina, you know Mike Levin who's running in Orange County, uh, the, the people from the industry, I think that they will make this a priority, and that's why I, I'm really interested in those races as well. I think what will be interesting, though, is the Republicans who are maybe, you know, friendly to these issues. Once they get to D.C., you know, it all comes down to who's the leader of the House, what makes it to the floor. And even if they would maybe vote in favor of it, they may not have any opportunity to uh, once we get to the next legislative session. And even amongst the Democrats, right, because there's a lot of issues right now, health care, immigration, gun control. So in order to get this front and center, I think we need people from the industry who are in the caucus and fighting to make this a priority. So we're talking about House races and winning back the House, but California also has, you know, a gubernatorial election. Governor will be selected. Shane is smiling. He, uh, clearly going to be a Republican. Naturally. I just don't want to weigh in because I'm excited for my Say Something Nice session. Okay. You hold on to that. But it will be interesting to see if the next governor in the state makes climate and clean energy as much of a priority as Governor Brown has. So I think that same question kind of resonates, you know, in this at the state level here, because that's what Brown says he's banking on for the future in the states, a future for jobs and innovation. Um, will the next governor, whoever that may be, take up that leadership mantle in the same well, way? They're going to have the hard part because Jerry Brown is setting a lot of things in motion. You know, they may pass a 100% renewable energy bill by the time he leaves governor. Uh, California may ban internal combustible engine vehicles, you know, by 2040. The, the next governor is going to have to implement that. And, and just to make a, a comment on that, so 
Gavin Newsom, who's likely the next governor, um, I was in an L.A. Times conference where he was a speaker. And he said something that I just loved because of its sort of sheer honesty. And so the question is, now, will he follow up on what you just said, Brian, in the 100 percent renewable energy goal? One of the questioners at this panel said, um, how come you haven't been out there fighting for the 100 percent clean energy? We know you're a champion of clean energy. We know you're a champion of, uh, on climate issues. But how come you haven't fought for 100 percent renewables? And his response was quick. Well, I just hopped on a plane in San Francisco to get down here for this. So kind of is what it is. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought that was just a very honest response. In other words, our economy just can't function that way. And so the question is, will he pick up that mantle and change his position over the last year? Or will he try to get the best possible I don't know outcome? if it's changing his position. I mean, it is all over his website. He's for 100% and it's a priority for him. And maybe I mean, he's 100% electricity or is he 100% renewable? Yeah, 100%. Renewable. I mean, I'm going to have to pull the tape before our next recording. He was very clearly not for 100% at that point in time. Well, we'll have to see. He's not exactly known as being a outspoken leader on climate and energy issues at this moment. Doesn't mean he wouldn't champion a super strong climate and energy agenda. I think we just don't know enough about where he stands on the issues currently. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supporting him. <laughs> and so and it's there's an ad on his website about 100% renewable energy, you know, so he's out in front on this. But he is clear-eyed that implementing that is difficult and that's going to take a lot of work. Right. And that's that's what it really will come down to is putting putting the pieces in place. Um, just to note, you know, the fight for second place in California's governor's race is between Republican John Cox and Democrat Antonio Villaraigosa. So we can leave it there in California for now. We can leave it there on our election special for now. We're going to revisit some of these races, some of these themes again for sure. So stay tuned for that. To wrap things up, let's go to our final segment, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where each of our co-hosts has to say something they found redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, let's go to you first. I think you smiled when we mentioned uh, the governor's race. So what do you got? Yeah. So back to Gavin Newsom. And I actually mean this sincerely. Sometimes I do backhanded compliments during this session. But but I do just genuinely find the guy magnetic. I don't know why that is. Part of it was at that conference I mentioned. I just enjoyed listening to him talk. Uh, the answer that I, that I just sort of stated apparently doesn't hold true anymore. But I just enjoyed the sort of pure honesty because you don't get that very often in politics. Uh, but interestingly, so um, I was just trolling Gavin on Twitter for reasons unknown the other night while I was like having a glass of wine and winding down for bed. And um, <laughs> okay, he is he also on a poster? Well, I, like, your... I like politics, you know, I like Gavin Newsom. I do like I don't know why I do. I don't agree with him on anything, but I just I, I, I enjoy him. So he um, he had tweeted a Trump tweet where he was saying, hey, look, Trump is out there endorsing John Cox. Um, we should all be aware of this. John Cox is, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing terribly, but basically John Cox is not the answer for California. Trump is supporting him. That's even more proof that he's not the answer for California, blah, blah, blah. So I, you know, retweeted back Gavin Newsom, which I'm sure no one ever saw because I have like eight followers. But, you know, I retweeted, um, come on, like Gavin, get serious. You're supporting John Cox. You're spending money on the air to prop up John Cox. You want to run against John Cox. You don't want to run against Villaraigosa. You don't want the jungle primary to end in two Democrats running against one another because a Republican-Democrat matchup works much better for you. So fast forward a few days, I get a text on my phone today. And you know, on the iPhone, when it says maybe someone like it doesn't, the number is not in your phone book. It says maybe Julia. And I'm assuming it's you because I'm driving here and I'm late. And uh, but I have your number in my phone. So I'm like, maybe Julia. So I look and it says, hey, Shane, I'm Julia. I'm a volunteer for Gavin Newsom's campaign. There was a screen grab of that tweet. 
uh, not my tweet, but the Trump tweet, like just wanted to remind you that Trump, you know, endorsed John Cox. So show up and vote for Gavin. Now, these guys are incredibly sophisticated and they're well aware that I'm a registered Republican. And clearly, like any trolling I've done has been pro-Republican. And I just like admire the hell out of that. I love that they're like encouraging me to get out and vote for John Cox. So, Gavin, I heard you. I voted for Cox. You're safe as far as it as far as it relates to me. But um, but seriously, I, I just like the guy like it wouldn't it wouldn't bother me if he ended up being our governor. I don't know why that is, but but I do. All right. (laughs) He's turning. (laughs) Turn chain blue. Turn chain blue. He is wearing a blue shirt today. It's a California shirt. I'm being state appropriate. (laughs) There you go. Oh, sorry. California shirt. Okay, Brandon, what's the nice thing you have to offer? I have two um, for Shane. One, you know, I was at Stanford this weekend for the two birthdays we talked about. And being around all these scientists just reminded me of like how important this is, you know, to our country. And I saw uh, that the House Science Technology Committee is marking up uh, the budget for next year. And they have proposed, you know, with Republican leadership, uh, a five and a half percent increase to the Office of Science budget. That's really important stuff for our country. We got to invest in science Uh, and seeing Republicans, you know, want to increase that. um, I thought is very wise. Uh, And second, in in Michigan, recently there was a battle over rooftop solar and a uh, Republican who chairs the uh, Energy Policy Committee. He's a state elected official. Uh, His name is uh, Gary Glenn. He stood up and fought for rooftop solar, fought for net metering, and there was actually a Democrat opposed. So it was a really interesting uh, sort of debate. So good for uh, this state rep in Michigan to, you know, stand up and fight for distributed solar. I think Tom Steyer also got active in Michigan, and he was backing a uh, a ballot that I think they just dropped because the utility said they would step up and deploy more renewables or expand their renewable energy plan. Yeah, this is what happened in the state. I mean, the the Public Utilities Commission came out with like a negative. They they had a negative policy towards uh, rooftop solar, and this Republican, uh, you know, wanted to address it through the legislature, and then Tom Steyer, you know, had. Uh, threatened this ballot initiative. So they all got together. And I think this is on the right track now. So good, good, good example of, you know, bipartisan work to support, you know, clean energy. It brings up that point I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, though, that you might, you know, have these races where if you care about climate and energy, your person might be Republican, might be a Democrat, and they may not advance for other political reasons, which is going to be so interesting to watch, where you can't assume that just because someone's Democrat, they're going to vote clean tech all the time. As you just mentioned in Michigan, and we talked about Ohio earlier, um, where John Kasich came out and, you know, vetoed a bill that was anti-renewables. He is a Republican. We don't know what's going to happen there going forward, depending on who gets elected. Sometimes it's a regional issue. And, you know, the Michigan, it's also a good example of like how at the local level, uh, this is treated very differently than what's happening in the United States Congress. And so does energy and climate get wrapped up in the federal side of politics, though, at some point? Or is it just specific policies that will get wrapped up there? Sounds like solar safe. But as soon as you try to do anything a little more aggressive, do the talks break apart at the local and even federal level? At this point in time, whether it's true or not, I tend to believe that it is. Um, I still think most voters, not all voters, I think we're starting to see a change, but most voters vote pocketbook. And so building out solar farms and creating jobs, that doesn't hurt your pocketbook. If anything, it helps. At worst, it's neutral. When you start talking about putting controls on energy or forcing certain energies out of the market, um, that will increase prices. I'm not even here to make the case that that's necessarily an awful thing, but it is a true thing. And so 
I think a lot of people are scared that when you talk about clean energy, you're going, yay, jobs, investment, all this great stuff. When you talk about climate, people start to think that sounds expensive, and I'm not sure that I want to vote for that. Well, we'll see. Maybe there will be some people who vote climate. We know that there are PACs out there advocating for climate-specific candidates. I'm not sure that we have a, a real answer to that one yet. So we'll leave it there for this episode. This is, again, Political Climate. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media. As always, with Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbutt, our resident Republican and Democrat. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at polyclimate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, soon coming to Spotify. We really hope you'll listen. And of course, uh, review us if you like it. Shoot us five stars. Thanks again. And until next time. This is the election showdown. <laughs>